This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Our next speaker is Dr. Peter Chin Hong, who I hope is here. Yes, he is here. And he's one of our transplant ID docs. He's sort of our go-to person. And any of you who have taken care of transplant patients know that our big problems in transplant, two of the big problems are infections and malignancy. And so we rely very heavily on Dr. Peter Chin Hong to help us with this. So he's going to talk about uh, fungal infections in transplant patients. Thanks a lot, Darren. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me here. Um, it's a lot of uh, fun for me to actually put these talks together because I try to be timely, but also give you a way of structuring some of the new developments in infectious diseases and kidney transplant patients. So I thought, given some of the new developments in infectious diseases, I should retitle the talk. And what I thought I'll just do is uh, call it Emergent Infections ABCs, and you'll see why, because I... Originally, I was going to talk all about fungus, but then there was one particular infection that I couldn't uh, really ignore. So the, the organizational structure for this talk is really about <clears throat> emergent infection ABCs. Most of it is fungus, and there's one that's not a fungus. You'll have to guess that, and probably you'll figure it out by the end of this talk, hopefully. So let's start with A. So A is based on this case. So this is a 44-year-old female status post-cadaveric renal transplant, four days prior in, who's currently in the ICU with fever. So blood cultural times two were drawn, and the patient's on piperacillin, tazobactam, ozosin, and vancomycin. And the lab calls with yeast growing in the blood cultures. Now, the interesting thing about this particular organism is that three other patients in the same ICU have been diagnosed with fungemia in the past few days. What's the identity of this yeast? So this is a uh, audience participation talk. So the first thing I want you to do is turn to your neighbor and try to come up with an answer in one minute or less, and then I'll have audience participation. And I know many of you so um, may, may call on some people, or maybe not. Maybe I'll make it um, more voluntary. <clears throat> so any uh, thoughts from the audience? Well, you know it has to have A in it, otherwise I wouldn't put it on the A. <laughs> I always give um, the medical students, so I do a lot of teaching with uh, hints and mnemonics. But any, any thoughts? Yeah, so that's close. So it's Canada, and the last name begins with A, and so it's Canada Auris. So this is kind of a scary new organism, and I'll tell you why. It's a yeast, so it's like Canada albicans, which we know very well, and non-albicans Canada. The disease it causes is very similar to the Canada species that we know. So a lot of bloodstream infections, wound infections. Uh, it's been isolated in the urine, in lines. And why is it scary? I mean, there are multiple reasons. But uh, the main reason is that it's transmissible. So it acts like C. diff or some other uh, organisms that could be uh, transmitted very efficiently. And I think that caught the medical community by surprise, how transmissible it was. There's also high mortality, but it's really associated with the kinds of patients it usually affects, which include a lot of kidney transplant patients, other heme malignancies, um, other immunocompromised patients, and patients with comorbidities. It's resistant, 
So um, typically, fluconazole won't hit it. Um, it's hard to identify. So a lot of times, you don't even know you're dealing with candida auris because the lab diagnostic capabilities haven't caught in step with what's going on epidemiologically. And it's increasing in incidence. So this is where it's, it started in Japan. It was first uh, described in 2009. But, uh, in, but since then, it's spread around the world. And it's been kind of a slow burn. So the New York Times recently profiled it, if you've seen that in the last few weeks, attesting to kind of the gradual uh, recognition by medical establishment and, and the population that it's becoming more of an issue. Um, so in the United States, it's really kind of a northeast uh, issue right now, but it's really spreading across the country, just like many infectious diseases that we've seen. A lot of it usually starts in the northeast, West Nile, um, multidrug-resistant pseudomonas, and then it, it spreads across the west. So right now, we don't have that many cases, but I think it's just a matter of time. So in the U.S., it's been you know a few hundred cases uh, that have been described, and this is one of the examples of Canada auris and how uh, transmissible it is. So we don't usually think about Canada as being transmissible, but this one is. So there was a recent outbreak that got a lot of attention in the United Kingdom in 70 ICU patients, uh, newer ICU patients. Um, they developed a range of Canada infections from candidemia to CNS device infections, um, and it was associated with reusable skin surface axillary temperature probes and the cleaning that was done with these probes. And you can see from the graph that once they figured out after doing an investigation that it was the probe, they removed the probe and the incidence of candida auris uh, decreased in the ICU and in the hospital in general. So that, um, uh, that was basically an example of how transmissible it is. So another kind of feature of candida auris is that, again, as it's becoming more, um, getting more attention, it's also been associated with donor-derived infections. And this is the first case in lung transplant. So this was a 71-year-old man from Boston. He had end-stage lung disease due to IPF, status post-lung transplant two days prior. His donor lungs were isolated with uh, candida auris, and it was you know, in a tertiary care center in Boston. So at, at some point, they were able to identify it, but not immediately because it gave a false alarm with another species first. And then they kept on re, uh, persistently uh, isolating candida auris in the recipient. Eventually, the recipient was put on ECMO and expired. It wasn't really clear how, what the association was with, with this bug, but it was certainly, um, uh, you know, isolated at the same time and persistently isolated. Um, so again, uh, this was a New York Times article that came out just in April 6th and profiled amongst many people, including patients, uh, one of our own graduates um, from ID program, SNGDA. And she says, uh, somehow it made a jump almost seemingly simultaneously and seemed to spread, and it is drug-resistant, which is really mind-boggling, said uh, Dr. SNGDA, uh, a fungal expert and epidemiologist at the CDC. So SNGDA is leading a, a lot of the investigation around Canada Auris. So that's A, A is for Auris in Canada. So for B, I couldn't, you know, I thought about a lot of fungi that began with B, including blastomycosis, which isn't really that uh, important in transplant. Or, and I also thought, well, maybe I should talk about BTS. Have you guys heard about BTS? 
Does anybody know, Mion might know who, who BTS is. It's a K-pop band, and I think of it some, sometimes as a disease because my kids are really too obsessed with BTS, and there's some kids who, like, go and camp out. There's this kid in Central Park who's been camping out for a couple of days to listen to this K-pop band, and if that's not a disease, none of these things are. Anyway, B is for bonus, and it's not a fungus, but it's this particular scenario that we've been becoming uh, more and more attuned to. A 30-year-old male, status post-cardioveric renal transplant two years prior, says he was contacted with the Department of Public Health because he was exposed to a case of measles. He has recently been treated for rejection with high-dose steroids. He's currently on MMF, tacrolimus, and prednisone. What do you do? So turn to your neighbor. Uh, you can tell them what your favorite tea sandwich is, but also you can try to answer this question as to what you can do. What will you do in this situation? So you're supposed to turn to your neighbor right now to do a peer share and then share with me. So are you going to give him anything? Are you going to just reassure him? Are you going to give him a vaccine? <laughs> Deborah's going to call me, which is a good answer, I think. It's, it's a really tough situation. I'll, I'll get to the answer in a second, but any thoughts from the audience? I wouldn't say if it's right or wrong yet, but I'll give you the info in the talk and we can discuss it after. Sorry? Uh, antibodies. So that's one good thought. You know, you can check a titer to see if the patient has antibodies to measles. If the patient has antibodies to measles, you can reassure the patient that it's li- unlikely to be have any uh, detriment. So I like I like that idea. So let's let's talk about measles. So it's been getting a lot of attention again. Uh, who'd ever think that measles will be emerging? Uh, but certainly, in not only in the world in general, but in the in the U.S. and again, Northeast uh, is bearing a brunt of the burden of disease currently, and it's spreading across uh, to big pockets in the in California, uh, particularly in LA. As some of you might know, uh, there were like hundreds of students who were quarantined in UCLA and USC a few weeks ago because of possible exposure to measles. So we've been fielding a lot and a lot of questions from transplant patients and possible exposures and pre-transplant workup and whether or not we should include measles titers currently given the epidemic. So what about measles? So we have to relearn measles now because we haven't thought about it for a while, except if you're younger, maybe you remember it from studying it for the boards, but that's pretty much the only time people thought about measles. But the incubation period is 7 to 21 days after the exposure, and uh, patients usually present with a flu-like illness. So if you remember, it's the four C's. I listed three of the C's here, cough, coryza, and conjunctivitis. Coryza is a head cold. And the fourth C is coplic spots. So if you look in the cheek, you might see these white little spots that could be uh, indicative of measles. And then in the next two days, uh, you get a rise in fever, and you get this red, blotchy, maculopapular rash. Starts on the face and rapidly spreads downward to the chest, the back, then the thighs, and the feet. Patients generally get itchy, but not until the fourth day of rash, and then the rash starts to fade after uh, day three to four. So the scary thing about measles is that it's it's extremely, extremely transmissible. Um, So the shared airspace with a measles case is infectious during the four days prior through the four days after the rash onset. And say the the measles patient comes to the emergency department or to your office, uh, the measles uh, virus is um, present up to an hour after the infectious person has left. Uh, 
and there's no minimum t- exposure time period. Although the longer you stay in the environment, the higher the risk. The criterion for immunity in a high-risk patient, like a kidney transplant patient, uh, includes documentation of possible pos- positive measles IgG serology, so doing a titer, or documentation of two doses of measles given in an MMR vaccine in 1968 or later, separated by at least 28 days, starting on or after the first birthday. So even you know at UCSF and many other health facilities, we're now, given the scope of the epidemic, being asked to prove measles immunity to the infection control and to the hospital group um, before being allowed to continue working. So let's talk about post-exposure prophylaxis for exposed persons who are susceptible to measles. So you, can, you have two choices. One is you can give the MMR vaccine if given less than 72 hours after the exposure, if not contraindicated, and it's contraindicated in kidney transplant patients generally. Or you can give immune globulin or IVIG <clears throat> less than six days after the last exposure. So you have some time frame in which to uh, make this intervention. Um, so who can receive measles vaccine? So it's a live attenuated vac- virus vaccine, so it's contraindicated for severely immunocompromised patients. The guidance and by societies haven't really kept step with the epidemic, uh, so it's subject to interpretation. But right now, immunocompromised patients include uh, you know, stem cell transplants who are two years... Uh, the people who can receive the vaccine include stem cell transplant patients who are t- two years out of transplant. Uh, certainly in HIV-infected individuals, if you had CD4 counters greater than 200, there have been guidelines for a few years now where these patients can get the MMR vaccine. But in terms of transplant patients, the guidance is a little bit murky and not very um, definitive if you look at guidelines and, and so on. So the specific wording is that um, you, know, you look at the, the drugs that the patient is on and um, you know, given the HIV precedent, and there haven't been any negative uh, consequences of giving the vaccine for CD4 count greater than 200. Uh, you know, some uh, IDSA and others have, and the CDC has divided, basically, uh, you know, you think about whether or not how immunosuppressed the patient is. If they're highly immunosuppressed, they're probably going to be more likely to have a negative reaction to the vaccine as opposed to low-risk immunosuppression. And I think it's interesting that some of the drugs we use, like cyclosporin, um, steroids are considered low-risk, steroids less than 20, um, as opposed to some of the newer biologics that are on the right side. So some of the questions, who should receive IVIG if exposed to measles? Generally non-immune, exposed adult patients who are pregnant or severely immunocompromised. So if you can get a titer on your patients, you have pretty much within a week you can, if you can get back the results within a week, you can uh, decide whether or not you need to give IVIG, uh, depending on the situation. Uh, how much protection does my patient have from receiving uh, prior vaccinations? Well, persons born before 1957 are likely but not guaranteed to have natural immunity, which is generally a better immunity than the vaccines. But patients born after 1957 uh, are likely going to be immune, but the titers may wane. And, and the California Department of Public Health recommends IVIG post-exposure prophylaxis for severely immunocompromised patients who've been exposed to measles regardless of past evidence of measles immunity. 
which patients should have their measles titers checked? Well, I think, you know, depending on how the epidemic goes, um, considering incorporating this into pre-transplant screening, vaccinating at least four weeks before the transplant, waiting at least three months following any IVIG administration, because if you give IVIG, it's going to decrease the efficacy of the vaccine uh, pre-transplant. And then no trans standard recommendations for checking measles IgG in post-transplant patients. So these are some resources. Uh, again, it's kind of a moving target depending on what happens in the country. And with, as the population prevalence increases, you can imagine, then uh, our patients are definitely going to be affected in some way or the other. So that's uh, B, bonus. And then C is uh, traditional uh, back to fungus. Does anybody know what this is? It kind of looks like a pomegranate if you cut it in two. And it begins with C. Coxie, exactly. Yes, Coxie Fiorule, that's, that's great. A plus. <laughs> so this is a typical case. Um, uh, 60-year-old female status post cadaveric renal transplant. She's doing well post-up day number four, and you're planning for discharge. You're pe feeling pretty happy when you get a call from the OPO, and the, and the OPO tells you the donor has tested positive for Coxie uh, antibodies. What do you do? So turn to your neighbor, and uh, let's get some audience participation. I know you guys have had a lot of tea sandwiches, but we want to have some more vociferous uh, audience participation. This one is a scenario that happens very often in our region. And in the safe environment, there's no wrong answer. <laughs> Any thoughts from the audience? What is that? You want to, uh, so one thought is, do you check, uh, on who are you checking a coxie on the recipient or the donor? The recipient. So one, one thought is to get coxie status on the recipient, kind of like to see if there's a mismatch. Any other thoughts? Which is a good thought. Are you going to treat or just reassure the patient? Treat? Ketoconazole is a good thought. Um, we have we, fluconazole is is something that you know we can also use and probably use a little bit more widely these days. Are you guys scared about this, or you kind of just you know it's just interesting? <laughs> scared or not scared? I guess the theme of the talk so far is being scared. So I guess just statistically speaking, you're probably going to be scared. If otherwise, I wouldn't be talking about it. So it is a little bit scary. It's scary because people haven't really appreciated what Coxie is capable of doing because it's very sort of behind the scenes and we don't really think about it. We do accept risk in transplant recipients and when individuals get certain diseases that are regional, we think of it, you know, maybe they acquire this uh, particular infection just from the aspect of living in, in our environment. But um, the area endemic for Coxie, which is, you know, the darker the green, the higher the risk, really overlaps with our uh, particular uh, area for transplantation. So that by itself uh, gives some pause. And uh, we did a look-back study using our um, California uh, Donor Network West data for two years, and uh, we looked back at about 654 potential organ donors. Uh, 11, 
11 of those were COX-C antibody positive. 7 out of 11 became donors, about 64%, and 26 organs were donated to 22 recipients with an average of uh, four organs per donor. And when you look at mortality uh, in the individuals who got, and this was matched to people who weren't COXI antibodies in terms of the donors, the mortality in the, in the recipients uh, who got uh, COXI negative donors was about 4.5%, and the mortality in the COXI positive donors was about 27%. So there's you know, more than fourfold uh, difference here. So the COXI uh, antibody status was strongly associated with increased mortality in organ recipients. We also did a few other things, like looked at um, bronchioalveolar lavage, did some PCRs, but that wasn't really uh, giving us any new information. And we did a multivariable analysis as well. If you lived in an endemic region, which was you know the darker green areas, highway, you know the Coxy Highway is basically highway, uh, you know um, Highway Five that goes through the Central Valley. Um, that was giving you an increased risk of an odds ratio of 1.21. If you had a history of incarceration, odds ratio of 3.5 in terms of coxie infection and calcifications of chest imaging. Because a lot of times when we have donors, we, 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 we get a lot of information. And a common sort of scenario is that the donor has these calcified nodules. And what do you do with, in terms of thinking about uh, recipient safety? And that was actually a, a huge independent risk factor for being... Uh, having coxie infection. So what do we do as a region? Well, uh, prior to this data, um, we did targeted uh, screening for coxie. So we didn't screen everyone. Uh, we looked at, you know, we looked at calcifications and imaging. Usually, if they were not used to, we'd you know, normally send coxie histo check uh, for TB risk factors. And, um, and the donor network West, they also look at uh, endemic uh, residents. So this is an example of the the, the coordinator questionnaire that, that would, uh, would be asked. So basically, was he or, she, or the, the potential donor suspected to have or were they diagnosed with valley fever? And there's all these questions that try to get at uh, their risk. But, uh, you know, this was brought to the medical board, and the, the question was, you know, should we still continue to do targeted screening? Because some of the individuals who were potentially COXI antibody positive didn't currently reside in the endemic area. And of course, our population is very mobile, and we can't really discern exactly uh, geographic risk. So the board decided to do universal COX antibody screening instead, and it was due to a few reasons. One was that the fear that the selective screening would miss positives in the face of this mortality risk. It was simple to prophylax given fluconazole, which is, you know, at the high doses of fluconazole, you do get interactions with calcineurin inhibitors, but at a lower dose where you can settle the patient after a while. And the duration depends on the risk, which I don't have time to go into, but there's sort of like um, a risk of how long you would treat the recipient for based on the donor. The test was generally low cost, and the testing will not always result before recovery, but centers will be notified. And it's estimated about 2 to 3% of our population is COX antibody positive. In Arizona, almost 100% are positive, so they took a different tactic, which is not to do any testing, but to treat all recipients and prophylax everyone. Because our region is mixed, uh, and we didn't want to just expose everyone to fluconazole, we decided to just uh, do universal screening rather than universal prophylaxis. So I think 
the rest of the country might mirror something like what we're trying to do in California, which is to do uh, focus on screening rather than on prophylaxis post because, again, a risk, um, the, the risk of the individual potential donor is variable in California as opposed to places like Phoenix. So those are the ABCs. Um, uh, you know, A is for Canada auris. Uh, we talked about it as a new species of Canada coming to an ICU near you. It's scary because it's highly transmissible. Uh, like, it's similar to the story about C. diff. You know, in the old days, we didn't really put on these yellow gowns for C. diff, and we were spreading it from patient to patient, and it was kind of like, you know, it was called this fecal cloud. You know, like Pigpen and Charlie Brown, it was like the same thing with with, with uh, C. diff. Well, Kanda Auris is very similar in terms of transmissibility, and you saw that data from the UK with where it was linked to that those temperature probes. Um, we talked about measles. Um, it's not a fungus, but it was a bonus infection I couldn't ignore because it was very timely, and it's increasing in incidence in the U.S. If transplant patients have been exposed, I think the main uh, issue is you can certainly do a titer, and I probably would start with a titer if you can get the results back, depending on if they had a true exposure or not. And if you can't really get, the, not sure when you get the results back and you're convinced that the exposure is real, you should give IVIG. And, you know, whether or not we should be working up our pre-transplant patients more carefully with titers remains to be seen. There's no official guidance around that. But depending on whether or not the epidemic increases, and all, for all intents and purposes, it seems to be um, that might be something that we can discuss. And then C's... Uh, um, for coxie, and um, you know we, we we've seen that donor derived coxie is a high mortality, but it's easy to prophylax uh, if the donor is coxie antibody positive. And we've taken more of a uh, prof, uh, screening method uh, strategy in in a mixed population versus a universal prophylactic strategy. So thanks a lot for your attention, and those are the ABCs. Yes. Yeah, so ty- so that's a great question. So serology post transplant is not um, it's not as uh, it's, it's poor sensitivity as you can imagine. So I think going back to the pre transplant data uh, might be helpful in terms of knowing if the patients had coxie. But even if the patients had coxie in the setting of and that's another issue too that you know I, I still have to discuss with Chris and so on is. What do you do in the pre-transplant setting with positive coxie serologies? I think we're just kind of still debating uh, about that and certainly about living donors as well. But serology post-transplant is notoriously insensitive. So I think you probably would, the safest thing and what we'd recommend is to give prophylaxis if the donor is antibody positive. And you may not get back that result for some time. You may get it back immediately, but it's variable. But my take-home point is not to ignore it. And if you're not sure, just call one of us. Chris, and then we'll have. What would you tell us if we called you and said we had a donor, a deceased donor that had recent measles? Would we use those organs, or could we use those organs? Uh, so that's a that's a, a really tough issue. If they've if had if they've had recent measles, the chances are of your recipient having had uh, measles immunity is generally high. So right now. We probably want to establish that, but if we weren't sure, we'd probably give IVIG and treat it like a... I wouldn't necessarily um, 
discard the organs unless it was like active measles because you can get disseminated measles with like CNS involvement, which is rare. So if it was, you know, even a recent or remote history of measles, I probably wouldn't turn away the organs, but I would think about using something post-transplant to protect the recipients. But it's a moving target again. And luckily we haven't seen, had to come up with this, but it's only a matter of time we'll, before we, we get to those scenarios. Question: The high mortality rate uh, with the recipients from COXI-positive donors, uh, do we know how these patients died, and was the disease recognized and treated in these patients? So that's a great question. So in the mortality risk um, associated with donors who are COXI-positive and recipients, uh, did the recipients die of COXI? I think we couldn't really get all of the data from recipients in the study because it was kind of at a population level, but I would say... We knew many of those cases, and it was cases where coxie is very difficult to diagnose a lot of times in transplant patients once they have it because, again, serology is insensitive. Um, the BALs may not give you the information up front. So it's a tough diagnosis, and I would say probably many of these diagnoses were missed in the post-transplant period, and they died of sepsis NOS or you know where we didn't know what was going on, but they are certainly... A few, a couple of high-profile cases where there was coxie in recipients, but again, not knowing the the linkage. I think the thought was that you know maybe they acquired it because they lived in a coxie endemic area, so it was hard to tease apart. But the the match data was striking when you looked at the population level because you would assume that the the coxie negative donors recipients also lived in the similar group of them also lived in an endemic area. I'm going to ask you one question. It's been on my list for a few months to talk to you about. People who live, say, in Fresno, Visalia, that area, should we be empirically just giving them prophylaxis like Mayo Scottsdale does? Yeah. And they're on indefinite prophylaxis. I think it's a tough situation, but I feel like given the, you know, you may not have to give them tons of fluke, but I feel like that's the way we're probably moving. And I think we need to get together a group as a group and discuss that. That'd be um, great. Because I feel like, as we get more and more, you know, nobody else in the country is going to look at COXI except our group because it doesn't affect others as much as we do. Right. So as the data emerges, and we also thought, you know, we, we never thought of ourselves as being like Arizona, but you can see there's enough COXI there where it's affecting our patients. So we probably, you know, it's, it's a risk-benefit issue. And right. at a low dose of fluke, which doesn't interact that much with calcineurin inhibitors, it may, the juice may be worth the squeeze. Okay, we should talk about it. Yeah. Okay, any other questions? Oh. One thing, I learned that there was an ethnic predisposition, like Filipinos are especially susceptible. Maybe certain populations ought to be more closely screened or treated. Yeah, so the populations, and we don't really understand the genetics, but certainly certain populations are higher risk of disseminated infection. Pretty much everybody can get coxie, um, but the individuals at risk for disseminated infection beyond the lungs include uh, Filipinos, Latinos, African-Americans, um, and, and we're not really sure the exact genetic uh, risk. But what's, certainly that's been described in the population and, and clinical studies, for sure. What constitutes a significant exposure to measles? Same airplane, same room, handshake, or yeah, having no, I mean, I think you? knowing that... Uh, and usually the Department of Public Health, the question is what sign, uh, constitutes a significant measles exposure. I think if the Department of Con- Public Health informs that you, might, you were in a 
potential area, like say you were that student in the library at UCLA, that would probably be enough for me to bring out an IVIG trigger in a transplant patient. Um, just not knowing, oh, unless I can get the serologies back in time. But I think uh, generally they're the cases where they've gotten some attention because public health is activated, so it's not kind of a gray area uh, for that significant. But measles is like extremely transmissible. So you can be there and have measles, and I could be here, and if I were not protected, I can get it. So it's similar to TB in terms of um, being uh, having some airborne um, sort of transmission, not like respiratory viruses or influenza, which are heavier and it's droplet precautions needed only. So they only can go like a few feet and they drop. With measles, SARS, varicella, and, um, and uh, TB, they can like jump across the room. And even after you leave, for four hours later, I'm still at risk for measles. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.